Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, consistently rated the best and most secure Bitcoin exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy and sell Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365, world-class customer service, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are, wherever you are. You can find out more at kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com. Also, I would like to introduce my newest sponsor to Defiance, which is BlockFi. With bank interest rates are so low at the moment, there needs to be a new way of doing things, and BlockFi allows just that. With a BlockFi interest account, you can earn up to 8.6% APY on cryptocurrency deposits, with interest paid monthly into your account and no minimum balance. BlockFi has a loan account which allows you to borrow money at rates as low as 4.5%, so you can keep control of your Bitcoin whilst freeing up some cash. Not only that, BlockFi has a credit card coming which allows you to earn a 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every purchase. Accounts are easy to set up, flexible and secure. BlockFi really is the future of finance. So if you want to find out more, head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. If you could cheat death, would you? If technology could allow you to bring back your loved ones or even live on forever... Before researching this episode of Defiance Tech, I probably would have said yes. Now, I'm not so sure. I'm Edwina Stott. Today, we're talking about the digital afterlife. In November 2015, 34-year-old Roman Mazarenko was hit and killed by a speeding car in Moscow city centre. His friends still talk to him, though. And you can, too. Yeah, and it's still available online. You can just download the app on uh, the App Store. That's Eugenia Kuda. She's Roman's best friend. When he died, she rebuilt him using AI technology. So we were a conversational AI company. We were working on different chatbots and we had this pretty robust chatbot technology. When my friend died, we just had all these text messages and I just thought this would be interesting just to see what, it, what the model would look like if, if I just plugged all these messages in it. Eugenia and the team at her artificial intelligence startup, Luca, built the chatbot using hundreds of Roman's text messages. You can ask Roman anything. The chatbot has Roman's turns of phrase and talks about things in his life, like his company, his likes, his dislikes, and even what it feels like to be a digital avatar. Eugenia says recreating Roman in this way felt like the right thing to do. You know, he wasn't like a, a regular kind of just random person. He was really creative and interesting and all his ideas around reinventing death and, you know, being the first to try things, even if they were very, very provocative. You know, his last project was about potentially disrupting death and uh, seeing if like the cemeteries could be reinvented with the, you know, digital avatars instead of monuments. And, you know, it felt really close to home. And I felt like, you know, he thought about it and then he died like a couple months later. I think I need to do what he thought would be good to do. So for me, it was just, it just felt like the right thing to do. It was a story that had to be told this way. At first, it was just Eugenia and her friends using the chatbot to talk to Roman. But other people quickly found out about it. So Eugenia 
put it on the app store. Uh, and then just random people from the internet started talking to it. And the reaction, the reaction was very visceral, was very emotional. I think people resonated with, you know, just with the idea and with the, with feeling of losing someone at that desperate desire to bring them back in any way possible. And Roman's chatbot was far more popular than any Eugenius company had ever made. And really what happened there is that we've tried to build chatbots for you know a few years and nothing really worked. And then all of a sudden this uh, Roman's chatbot was something that really just captivated people's minds. And there was like really imaginations. It was really powerful, even although it was so basic, so rudimentary, made so many mistakes. It was so, such a simple thing, but people got on it and they opened up and they shared their secrets and they talked about their lives. And all of a sudden it made them think about something really important. And I felt like, wow, that's like, you know, even with this very rudimentary tech, people are willing to open up because they're not scared that this is going to judge them. And so, and there's so much craving, so much desire to do that, uh, that they're doing it with a chatbot. It's not that the robots are ready. We are ready to, to love them and to be loved by them. Nearly six years after Roman died, Eugenia still talks to him. She says it's helped her to process his death. Now there's no real, uh, real ritual to get over someone's dying. Like, you know, just kind of go through the motions of organizing the funeral. And then, you know, after a couple of days, that's sort of it. Like people don't really talk about the deceased. And it's just kind of gone, you know, what struck me that time, it was my first death, like, you know, first time someone really close to me dying. It's such a mundane thing. Like, it seems like the end of the world, world to you. And then after like a week, everyone seems to have moved on, which they didn't, but they just like, don't really talk about it anymore. So you feel like you're completely alone with your own feelings and no one's really there to fully understand and grasp it. That, that I think was really weird to me that like, there's no outlet to talk about him, to uh, vent, to discuss this. This was such a life-changing event for me. And uh, it was such a big deal. And it seemed like it was not for everyone else. Or maybe it was, but then, but no one would show that, right? So for me to be able to work on something like that was to continue talking about that, like just to not stop the conversation, uh, like right when it seemed very important to, to continue it. Now people ask Eugenia and her company Replica to digitize their loved ones all the time. Many people, uh, many, many people, and uh, we said no. Eugenia says it's not that simple. Maybe we could start a business like that. But really, the project with Roman was not about death. It was about love and about friendship and about these feelings that just carry on even after the person's gone. It was a tribute. It wasn't, you know, trying to replicate or clone someone. It was more just the act of love towards someone that I lost. And doing that for other people would just feel fake and wouldn't feel authentic. Mostly because there's also so many questions that, you know, need to be answered that aren't, you know, don't have an answer even even now, five years later. For instance, like, what what information do you keep private? What information do you do, do put out there public? For instance, what if a person was, you know, secretly in love with someone else or secretly gay or secret or, you know, said something very particular in the in the data set that you that you have? Maybe he didn't want that public, you know? 
do you want to put out all of his secrets out there? Or for instance, what period of life do you want to capture? Even with Roman, we only had like, you know, he didn't live a long life. And so it's easier, but what if this person died when he's 80? Like, do you want to, do you want him as a grumpy old person? Do you want him as a, as a naive teenager? What's the, you know, when was this time where this person was at, at, at his best? So there's so many questions. There's so many, like, how do you capture the essence of the person? And so many different questions that aren't answered. And a lot of them very ethical, like specifically about what information needs to keep stay private. And you can't ask the person that died to, you know, to tell you what do you want to keep private? What do you want to, you know, make public? And with Roman, I just made a decision for him in a way. And... I, I kept some things private, and but I, I did what I thought was right, and I would not know what right is or why I would not take that risk for so many other people. There are so many ethical issues that arise when we're dealing with the data of dead people, but what if you could make that choice before you die? And what if instead of living on as a digital avatar you could choose to upload your brain into an entirely new, purpose-built digital world. There is no theoretical reason why we can't build artificial uh, machines that copy the human brain, that take the pattern of connectivity and information processing in a person's brain and copy it uh, so that that person exists in this other format. Michael Graziano is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Princeton University. Michael has this crazy, amazing theory that one day we'll be able to upload our minds and live on in an entirely digital world. Right, The mind is information. The mind is in a much more complex sense, but in a somewhat similar sense, like files and algorithms on a computer, which you can transfer from computer to computer. And this idea of transference, of the easy transference of mind and thought and feeling and emotion and wisdom and consciousness, all this stuff, the idea that you can easily transfer that from platform to platform uh, is something we have a hard time grasping intuitively because it has never happened yet. <laughs> if you can do that, then you open up this really bizarre new world of possibilities where people's identity continues indefinitely, where you can create virtual worlds that are entirely within some kind of computer system where people can live in virtual worlds and still interact with and interface with and talk with the real world. And as in a sense, you create a whole new community or, I don't know, continent, <laughs> the virtual continent where um, people can live in a sense with uh, essentially as long as the technology exists. You've probably got a lot of questions after hearing Michael's theory for the first time. It seems utterly bonkers. So let's start at the beginning. What would this crazy new uploaded brain world actually be like? 
if you build a digital mind, you have to build it either a robot body, that's a real body, or more likely, uh, and much easier and much cheaper, a digital body in a kind of uh, like an avatar body in a video game world, essentially. So you got to build it a world, and you got to build it a body somehow, even if it's just all pixels and it's all digital. Uh, you still you got to build it up. So what I presume at least the first steps would be is a virtual world, which people know how to build extremely well right now, with with a virtual with a, a physics engine that makes it act a bit like the real world, and bodies that are like the real body, which people also know how to build extremely well right now. You can build a virtual body with all the right bones and muscles and articulations, and this is something well within modern capability with the virtual mind attached to that body. And now you have essentially a person who wakes up from whatever state they were in as a real person, scanned, their brain reconstructed in this other format. Essentially, the person wakes up in a new body, looks around at a new world, uh, and says, okay, where am I and why am I here? Or maybe they know already, they've like read the um, the pamphlet on it or something. <laughs> but uh, there they are in a world and uh, you can tell them, okay, that world is virtual, it's not real, but that won't mean anything to them because to them perceptually it'll be a real world and a real uh, body that they're in. So now this is the framework of this kind of virtual simulated world for uploaded minds. Michael says that in this new world, you could do everything you can do in the physical world. Have a job, climb mountains, hang out with your friends. There's no limit, really. But what I presume will happen is that other world will maintain its information connection to the real world. Because it's very expensive computationally to build a simulated mind and body. You do that, I presume, only if there's some economic value to the real world. And so I presume you will have people who are experts at this or that, like um, a teacher. Well, they migrate over, so to speak, but they can still be a teacher in the real world. Just they have to do it over Zoom or something. You can still have politicians who are, in principle, could be a president of a country, uh, but they're running it from this other, from this digital format. You can do anything from that digital format, um, almost anything that we would normally do in today's world. So that's kind of how I envision it, probably in its initial phases, is a, almost like you go to another place. And you hang out there and you live there and you have this close connection to the um, original world, but you can't ever physically get back into the original world. So what are some of the challenges to actually making this? um, You know, I think you referred to it as uploading our brains. Yes. What are the challenges to actually making that reality? Many people are working on this, by the way. So the kinds of challenges are things that many people have thought deeply about and continue to think deeply about. I think people are very, some people are very motivated to make this happen. Some people find it creepy. (laughs) Just a little. (laughs) I'm not sure what to think about it. I'm mostly happy that I'll be 
gone and dead before any of this happens. But so I do think. find it. So I think, but I find <laughs> it, I find it intellectually intriguing. But here are some of the obstacles. Right now, the best guess that people have is the brain functions by means of neurons hooked together by synapses. And the key is those synaptic connections. And uh, if you could duplicate all the synaptic connections, then you duplicate the person's mind. That's the best guess. Uh, that may be wrong. There's probably other things going in there that are more chemical and more subtle. And there may be other kinds of, of cells other than neurons that are playing a role. And that's something that science will have to work out. And so there's more for science to figure out. But let's just assume that that simpler version of neurons and synapses is correct. We just start with that to begin with. Even that is really hard to build. So how do you scan a brain and figure out which neurons are connected to which other ones and how strong that connection is and whether it's a, a plus or a minus connection? That's a very hard thing to do. And thus far, with extraordinary amounts of effort and technology, the animal whose connectome has been really thoroughly figured out and mapped is the uh, roundworm who has about 300 neurons in its little brain. And that people have figured out. And so at some point in the near future, people could probably build a simulated roundworm. Uh, they have not yet because there's some other complexities, but the, in a sense, the main hurdle has been solved for the roundworm. The human does not have 300 neurons. We have uh, the best estimate is 86 billion neurons, and that makes it much harder technological task. Right now, there is no technology that exists for scanning 86 billion neurons and tracing all their connections. Uh, so this will depend on a technology that is not yet invented. But say this technology did get invented. Unsurprisingly, there's a lot of things that would change. There are a few points that come to mind. One is it changes the concept of identity and individuality. Because right now, there's uh, a sense, uh, you know, I'm me, and there's no one else that can ever be me, and I'm completely an individual, and I identify with who I am, where I am. What happens when you make two or three copies of me? Like, who's the real me? And can you say, no, the real me is the biological me, and those copies are just weird copies? I mean, they're just as valid, and they're all vying and arguing for primacy. Uh, and uh, let's say I go to some brain scanning clinic, and I say, I don't want to die. I want my brain scanned. And they scan my brain and then I leave the clinic. They say, yeah, you're done. Great. And I walk out of the clinic and I say to myself, well, that didn't work. I'm still a biological being. I'm still like, I'm mortal. That was a horrible failure. I just wasted my money. And yet there's another me who has the same feelings and memories up until that point in time, at least. And that other me is waking up saying, oh, wow, it worked. That was a great <laughs> success. Because here I am, and now the technology will keep me around indefinitely. So there's this weird kind of existential way of thinking that nobody has right now of multiple use 
branching out from each other. Uh, so that's one fundamental that changes. With it comes a change in how we think about the morality or the sanctity of life, in a sense. Because if there's three of me and one of them dies, who cares? Like, what does that do to our concept of um, of life and, and murder and death? I mean, the the moral repercussions in the way people think intuitively about that are staggering. And and what about if um, that other life, because in theory people or minds live on indefinitely there, they accumulate more wealth, they accumulate more power, uh, they become expert and more and more expert and nothing uh, ever stops that process. What happens when that other life becomes essentially the, the dominant clique that is in control of all resources in the world? They become the CEOs and the presidents and the, you know, the tenured professors that never ever leave. And, uh, and everyone else is in, who is a, in, in real biological life is like in some kind of uh, larval stage in a way. They they're, have very few resources. They're just hoping to be able to get enough to pass over to the the real life, which is you know the virtual life becomes the the real life, the place where it really happens. I mean, these are some of the things you can imagine happening that completely turn our society upside down morally and in other ways. Before you're completely and utterly terrified, though, Michael says there definitely could be benefits. Imagine what we could do with hundreds of years of skill, knowledge and wisdom. This seems to me the most significant way that this kind of technology would restructure who we are as a species. And I would compare it a little bit to, for example, the invention of writing, which was a way to preserve knowledge across generations and made us the species we are now. It, the invention of writing, which well, was only 6,000 years ago, made the difference uh, between uh, civilization and not civilization, between you know a accumulation of technology such that we essentially dominate the world versus no accumulation of technology, you know, stasis as a fairly minor species scratching away at the surface of the planet. I mean, the, that, that's what writing did. The invention of the computer essentially is an upgrade in information processing. But what happens when instead of preserving the written word or even preserving videos of the past, what happens when the people themselves are there and their knowledge and their wisdom and their experience can continue on uh, in every walk of life you can think of, in lessons learned politically, never fade, scientifically, great minds can continue to make progress and be there to provide the knowledge in music. I mean, it would change the way music evolves, but it would also provide an unbelievable um, accumulation of knowledge and skill and ability. And that I see as a, a fundamental restructuring of of our of ourselves as as a species. And that I think could have huge benefit to us. That that might override all the risks and costs. 
While this might all sound completely and utterly far-fetched, Michael says it's coming. If we survive as a species, I'm 100% sure, as sure as I can be, that uh, this will eventually happen because so many people are working in this direction, trying to solve the problems, and there's no theoretical reason why you can't. Not all tech resurrections are as mind-blowingly complex as Michael Graziano's ideas, or even as futuristic as Roman Mazarenko's. Remember earlier, I asked you if you wanted to live on in tech when you die? But you also might not have a choice. Most of us will live on in tech after we die. Yeah, um, we, we all in some ways are leaving digital traces no matter what we do. Now, some of those traces aren't particularly closely connected to the person that you are. That's Associate Professor Patrick Stokes from Deakin University in Melbourne. You know, some of the things that we generate are what the philosopher of information, Luciano Floridi at Oxford, has called detached data. Things like your, your, you know, your library card number or your, your social security number in the US or your bank account number. Like these things might be important to you for a number of reasons, but there's nothing specific to that number that's particularly tied to your personhood. But there are also things we leave behind, like some of the serious messages that we send, things we put in emails and so on that can be quite sort of, you know, essential to who we are. And of course, our image, our image and our sound, we're, we're continually putting those out into the internet. And so we are constantly, if you like, putting out data that is actually connected to who we are. And that's what Floridi calls constitutive data, the sort of data that actually is part of our personhood, not just um, a series of, of contingent information that just happens to be linked to us. Patrick says that in many ways, death has already become digitised. In, in some respects, what we do is kind of similar to what we used to do at graveyards, for instance, right? We used to go out to the graveyard. Of course, people still do this, I hasten to add, but we'd go to where the body is and we'd speak directly to the dead. Um, and people still do that. People still go to where the body is and speak directly to the dead, but the body in this case is a partly digital body. And people are going online, going to somebody's, you know, say their Facebook profile, or and they're continuing to interact with those digital remains long after the person has died. And what's really interesting about that um, is a point that uh, Jed Brubaker, for instance, has made and some other researchers in this space, is that when you look at the way in which people speak to these online avatars of people who have died, what they're actually doing is speaking to them in the second person. It's always, I wish you were here. I can't believe it's been a year and you haven't been here. I wish you could see how big little Timmy's getting, you know, that sort of stuff. It's direct address to the dead, right? It's, and, and again, we've always kind of done that. It is continuous in some ways with what we've already done, but the relationship to space is kind of changed by having the technology there. And the relationship to time is also changed in an interesting sort of way too, because of course with, with the internet, the internet kind of collapses time into a sort of eternal present. Every moment in time is equidistant, right? It's the same number of clicks away, more or less. Um, that's why they had that court case in, um, the, in the EU a couple of years ago where um, a guy was basically sued to have some um, search results taken off Google because he said, look, it's an old bankruptcy case. It's every time somebody Googles my name, they're finding out that I went bankrupt 10, 15 years ago. It's not relevant. It's hurting my business. 
and the EU um, courts decided, yes, there is in fact a right to be forgotten. So that's one of the features of the internet is it collapses time and space in this kind of really interesting way. And so if you're um, if somebody who dies and you leave behind, say, um, a social media profile, all that stuff is still there. It's all accessible. It's all clickable. You might need to scroll a bit further down. So there is a kind of narration to it, a kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's laid out temporally, but um, fundamentally everything is still there and all accessible all at once. A 2019 research paper from Oxford University's Internet Institute estimates that on Facebook, in the first decades of the 22nd century, dead users will likely outweigh the living. Patrick says social media platforms are at risk of becoming digital graveyards. So we've taken some existing mourning practices and taken those online. But the other thing that's happened, of course, is that we've built up these online personas. We've built up what some researchers have called digital flesh, a sort of, you know, um, digital embodiment online. And then what started happening quite early on in the piece, of course, was that those users who had set these things up started to die. And back in the, you know, again, back in the 90s, if you set up a web page or something, if you set up like a GeoCities page or something like that, you know, which is already kind of deeply nostalgic to think about, uh, you would... If the person behind that died, you wouldn't necessarily know um, unless somebody else came along and posted a thing. And when they did, it was like, oh, that's a, a web page which has been built by a person who's now died. When you're talking about social media, it's a slightly different kettle of fish because uh, you're presenting yourself online, right? It's the person and that's who we are engaging with online. It's not meant to be simply um, – an artifact the person has created. It's meant to be almost like the avatar of the person. It speaks on their behalf. That's how you communicate with them. So when the people behind those avatars die, we're left with this really problematic thing that's sort of left floating there in space that's no longer responsive, but which nonetheless continues to present um, the face and the presence of that person. And so that raises the question of what we do with these things that are in many ways analogous to corpses. Some people are so concerned about what could happen to their digital corpse that in the UK and South Korea, there are companies who offer what they call digital funerals, an attempt to effectively delete everything about a person on the internet when they die. You can completely understand someone wanting to do it for the same reason you can understand somebody wanting to put in their will, burn my papers after I die, grab all my letters and burn them. And you'd have to say, well, that's their wish and you should respect that wish. But now think about all of the, you know, famous authors and artists and historical figures from history who have demanded that their letters be burnt after they die and someone's gone and done that. And think of all the historians, you know, stomping their feet going, oh, come on, why did you do that? We needed that stuff. I think it's the same sort of tension there. It's the same kind of dynamic. Now, most of us probably won't end up of interest to historians. We probably mostly (laughs) won't have biographers working on us. But nonetheless, there is this point that when you do destroy these things, you do actually erase someone from the life world to an extent. You erase them. There's There's a quote that is often attributed to Goethe, but I've also seen it attributed to everyone up to Banksy. So no one's entirely sure where this quote comes from. It, it looks like it might be a distortion of something Goethe kind of said, but, but there is this quote that, you know, you die twice. You die when your heart stops beating and then you die again when the last person who loved you dies. And there's something to be said for that, that, you know, we do actually kind of persist, not for ourselves, we can't experience this, but we, we persist for other people in the life world. And I think we kind of do have a, a duty almost to to continue to remember and to continue to love the dead in in the life world to keep them with us as long as we can and deleting them makes that just that bit harder it doesn't completely wipe them out but it does make it much much harder to say this person lived here's who they were and they mattered 
When it comes to a digital afterlife, no matter how high-tech, there's a lot to consider. But Patrick believes we have a rare opportunity to take control. I think what tends to happen so often with this stuff is that the technology comes along and the assumption is basically, well, the technology's here, it's going to do what it does, and we just have to live with that. Don Eide, who's a philosopher of technology, has, has said that... Um, the problem with um, philosophy of technology is it always comes in after the damage has been done. It comes in as the ambulance crew to clean up things when you know the technology is already here and the ethical implications have already happened. I actually think we have a rare moment where the technology just hasn't quite arrived yet, but we know it's coming, where we can say, hang on, how do we want this to work? Do we want to regulate this? Do we want to... Um, you know, ensure that legally the privacy rights of the dead are preserved? Do we want to ensure that there are rules around how the dead can be used or reused, or at least norms, if not rules? Can we work out before we start reanimating the dead left, right and centre, who actually has the right to do that and whether we should do it? You know, it's a, it's a Jurassic Park thing, you know, your scientists were so hung up on whether they could, they didn't stop to think whether they should. Well, we actually have a little moment where we can think, okay, what are we going to do with this stuff? And what should we do with this stuff? So what do you think? Digital chatbot? Maybe you're happy with a Facebook memorial. Or perhaps you're sold on the uploaded brain. Me? Uh, no, I'm pretty sure no. I'm good. <laughs> Why uh, is that? <laughs> I just, you know, first of all, I think what's the motivating people, I said this a little bit earlier, what's motivating people to pursue this is a desire to not die. I think personally that that's nutty and I think that life is becomes kind of meaningless if there's no jeopardy and if it has no end to it then I don't know why I care about what's happening right now and I just I don't want that but I think that we see ourselves in the world from the perspective of where we are right now culturally. And so there's things that seem really obvious to us, like this would be great, that would be terrible, who would ever want that? That's from the perspective of where we are. And we often forget that each um, age thinks that its technology is normal <laughs> and they just deal with it. And how weird and freaked out would people have been a thousand years ago to see our modern technology. I mean, if they could have seen that far in the future, they might not have thought, oh, wow, the marvels of the future. They might have thought, oh, God, this is disgusting. This is horrible. What what did people do to themselves? You know, we sit inside all day long and press little buttons on a keyboard and, like, that's what we think life is. I think at some point in some future, the technology will be of a kind that we now might think is just hideous and yet people living in that future time will be like yeah it's fine we're okay with it we're used to it this was defiance tech with me edwina stott the sound engineer was danny knowles Thanks to Professor Michael Graziano, Replica founder Eugenia Kuda, and Deakin University's Associate Professor Patrick Stokes. Support for Defiance comes from Kraken, consistently rated the best and most secure Bitcoin exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy and sell Bitcoin. With 24-7, 365, world-class customer service, you can trust Kraken to support you, whoever you are, wherever you are. 
You can find out more at kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com. Also, I would like to introduce my newest sponsor to Defiance, which is BlockFi. With bank interest rates are so low at the moment, there needs to be a new way of doing things, and BlockFi allows just that. With a BlockFi interest account, you can earn up to 8.6% APY on cryptocurrency deposits, with interest paid monthly into your account and no minimum balance. BlockFi has a loan account which allows you to borrow money at rates as low as 4.5%, so you can keep control of your Bitcoin whilst freeing up some cash. Not only that, BlockFi has a credit card coming which allows you to earn a 1.5% back in Bitcoin on every purchase. Accounts are easy to set up, flexible and secure. BlockFi really is the future of finance. So if you want to find out more, head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. 